This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. My name is Joe Selbridge, and um, we're here in uh, cooperation with Dr. Gargano and the, the University, Villanova University's Geography Department, and the Geographic Society of Philadelphia in an effort to uh, explore geographic topics. And I, I teach at a couple of schools. There's students here from both of those schools. LaSalle College High School in Winmore and West Philadelphia Catholic High School in West Philadelphia. Um, I just want to introduce Dr. Gargano to those of you who don't, don't know him. He's the chairman of the Department of Geography and Environment here at Villanova. He's retired from the U.S. Army in 2007 as a lieutenant colonel after 27 years. He served in Germany, Kentucky, Texas, Saudi Arabia, Kansas, and most recently at the Military Academy, where uh, he was an academy professor and a director of the geography program. Uh, he's a physical geography with ge- ge- geographer with expertise in expertise in coastal geomorphology, military geography, and environmental science. He's published over five books, and he's going to talk about that. Well, thank you very much, Joe. Um, first, please excuse my Villanova sweatshirt. I'm not promoting Villanova tonight. I've been sick for the sort of the last couple of days, so I, and I also just attended that harassment training. Oh boy! So anyway, it made me worse. So I, I did have the I did have the chills earlier. Lisa saved me, told me where I could find some aspirin. So maybe I'll take this off soon. So I apologize. Also apologize for my voice. I've been saving it all day um, for this. So Joe and I talked about a year ago, and we thought, uh, especially for the Geographical Society to talk about uh, subjects of geographical importance. And uh, to, in my mind, uh, one of the key geographical uh, issues of geographical importance is this issue of effective sovereignty doctrine, which frankly exists in the world today. It is probably, you know, I don't, they, they talked around it at the, at the, they will talk around it at the next presidential debate. Uh, they talk around it every time they discuss the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, so I think it's one of the defining elements of our age in the national security landscape that we face and other countries face. And it just so happens we're going to use uh, Pakistan, or certainly uh, the, the, the western part of Pakistan, the tribal areas, as this sort of geographic region and, and this issue of the drone war. Uh, and we're going to talk about it. How did we get there? And then we're going to discuss the efficacy of this drone war. Really, what does it mean to us? And uh, so, yes, I was in the Army for 27 years. I was in tanks. You know, I was on the ground. Uh, I could see what I was doing. Uh, but this is a lot like a video game, and it kind of scares me a little bit as an old soldier. So uh, I'm concerned about it. I think it's lowered a lot of thresholds uh, for violence, um, you know, and uh, so and, and also for our young geographers or potential geographers, what do geographers do? Well, we don't study the capitals of states and we don't study the length of the Amazon River. Uh, I don't know what that is. Um, but we do study uh, spatial phenomena. In this case, looking at ungoverned spaces and um, this issue of the drone war. So I'm going to have a short presentation and then hopefully open it up to your questions and discussion over this issue. Um, to take you back a couple of years, uh, and, and in the context of Pakistan, uh, shortly uh, before President Obama gave his Afghan war speech 
at the United States Military Academy in 2009, the National Security Council issued two of these NIE. And if I could summarize them in sort of a couple of words, that's basically what they said. Okay. Um, and there's a couple of key words here. Control, in, uh, and, and that's where the issue of effective sovereignty doctrine takes place. Effective sovereignty doctrine, uh, to summarize it for you, basically says, and you could fill in the country name, but we'll talk about the U.S., it basically says the United States retains the right to eliminate any threat in another country that will not control that threat within its own space. And you could substitute Israel, you could substitute England, uh, Saudi Arabia, whatever country you want to do that, okay? Um, it's not necessarily new. I mean, I think if I were to look back to modern effective sovereignty doctrine, we can go back to probably 1916 the Mexican expedition into going after, uh, what's his name, Sancho, whatever, Pancho Villa, there you go, I knew I would get it. Uh, I think probably the biggest and clearest example of it in what I would call sort of the near modern age is probably 1982 in Beirut, uh, when the Lebanon, Lebanese government essentially lost control of its own state, and French soldiers, British soldiers, and American Marines went into Beirut separated the Israelis from the PLO, oversaw the safe evacuation, or near as peaceful as possible evacuation of the PLO, and then sort of took control of the area. And that's another example of effective sovereignty doctrine. So it all doesn't have to be um, warlike, necessarily. Uh, effective sovereignty doctrine is being accomplished in parts of Central America today through the use of economic and diplomatic means. So. Um, we see it all over, but in today's context, we're going to talk about this issue of the drones. Probably the most recent and probably most clearly dramatic exercise in effective sovereignty doctrine occurred on 2 May 2011, where uh, President Obama decided we we're going to send a covert action team into another country and, you know, to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. They did it without the express permission of the state sovereign. Uh, the state sovereign, of course, reacted badly to it, but again, it is probably one of the most definitive examples of this particular doctrine that we see. So this is the issue um, for tonight's talk. Um, so this is, this is Pakistan, Afghanistan, obviously. This is its troublesome border right here. Uh, there are those who would say that these are really one organic state. Uh, certainly, the Pashtun lands that uh, extend across both these borders right here. This is sort of an artificial border put in place by the British uh, called at one time the Durand Line. Um, and it separates basically two modern states that really probably don't recognize themselves as states at all. These are the federally administered tribal areas of western Pakistan. Uh, there are seven agencies. Uh, they have a rather complex governance, okay? They don't have county governments. They don't have, they have they're, they're run by administrators. They're more or less under the direct control of the president of Pakistan. Uh, just a couple of issues to, so you can understand what's going on here. Uh, development lags there obviously badly behind the rest of the state. And Pakistan is not exactly um, uh, a well-developed state at this point uh, compared to Western states. Uh, there, there's pervasive poverty and social stratification there. 
to give you some ideas of the differences between uh, the tribal areas and the rest of Pakistan. The literacy rate in Pakistan in general, according to some publications, about 54%. The literacy rate inside the FATA, or the federal uh, tribal areas, only 22%. Okay? The average person in the FATA goes to school for about 4.9 years. Uh, for 3 million school-age children, there are only 102 high schools. Uh, the, the void has been adequately and rather rapidly filled by Saudi-funded madrasas, which spread radicalism. Uh, Health care is a problem. For example, in Pakistan proper, about one doctor for every 1,500 people in the Fatah region, uh, there's about one doctor for every 8,000 people. And probably the most insidious problem they have there are the frontier crimes regulations. Uh, these are leftovers from the British colonial era. These are um, rather arbitrary laws that have been put into place. Uh, it has forced these people further away from the, I, I, according to uh, what I've read, from the, from the rest of the central government. Um, these are mostly Pashtuns, so they are socially very conservative. Okay. Uh, and, and, and so it does create an area that has been separated, and it's been separated purposefully by the Pakistani government, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So this presents a particular problem. And, and by any definition of governance, this is essentially ungoverned space right now. The Pakistanis don't necessarily control it, nor do we, nor, nor does any, anything like a state entity. So uh, we talked about the NIEs. This is what President Obama said at his very important um, speech in 2009 uh, at the United States Military Academy. Uh, and again, I think this is probably one of his key uh, comments that he said here again, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. And again, the inference is, um, we are going to go into a sovereign state without the express permission of the state sovereign. Okay? Here is President Obama's um, national security strategy published in May 2010. So as we, we sort of take a look at how we got here. Okay? Effective sovereignty doctrine as sort of a public, every president publishes in their presidency probably one every four years. Some will publish two or three. Uh, it depends on what's going on. Uh, this is the only one currently published by the Obama administration right now. Uh, this idea of effective sovereignty first appears in the national security strategy under President Carter, uh, not, excuse me, President Clinton. Uh, then, of course, uh, proliferates under President Bush, and right now has probably reached its peak as, in terms of a national strategy under President Obama. Okay? Uh, what does he say? He says right now, and this is about us, we face traditional state-centric threats. North Korea, uh, possibly China, uh, Iran, okay? Uh, you know, they're sort of the list of, for lack of a better term, the list of bad guys we're all worried about. Uh, then he talks about, very clearly, this idea of non-state-centric threats. And this is what's driving uh, effective sovereignty doctrine. Terrorism, violent non-state actors, those are criminal organizations uh, that exist in places, uh, not necessarily terrorist organizations. Environmental factors such as drought, uh, starvation, energy shortages, 
things of the environment that destabilize political systems, piracy, which we see in the news quite a bit, uh, weapons of mass destruction is a concern of everybody, and then this issue of ethnic warfare, which is a direct result of weak governance. So we, and we've seen that sort of explode uh, and certainly come more to the forefront after 1990 and the collapse of the Soviet Union. In terms of the enabling processes that are driving these, the President talks clearly about weak governance and failed states, and then this issue of effective sovereignty, which he brings up directly in here, and he talks about radicalization and the issue of globalization. Now, globalization is not necessarily a threat in itself, but it is the processes of globalization that allow these things to spread so quickly, and we'll talk about what that, how that works in a moment, okay? So this is essentially what the President is telling us. So, again, how did we get here? Well, before 1990, if we wanted to talk about the national security landscape as a geographer, we would say the world kind of looked like this. We had two superpowers. We had us, Soviet Union. We had the folks in red. That would be the Warsaw Pact. And then we had the folks here in blue, which would have been NATO. Those were essentially, it was a bipolar strategic world. Okay? And there were proxy wars or conflicts going on all over the globe. Now, these were deadly, and some of these, for example, the Agaden War, some of the wars going on in Yemen, of course, the long protracted conflict in Afghanistan, um, many, many people die in these wars. And if we, if we get a proportion of the casualties per capita in these countries and translate it to our population, we're talking many tens of thousands of people, okay? But yet these were proxy wars, but the interesting thing was, essentially, the two superpowers rarely let these things get out of control, okay? Even at the height of the 1973 war, which probably was the nearest thing that brought us another general war, probably in the last 50 years, in, in, in the Yom Kippur War in, in the Middle East, even then, both countries figured it out and stepped back and really pulled the parties apart before it got too far out of hand. Um, so the key here is the state is the key component on the national security landscape. There are well-known and well-accepted diplomatic protocols. I have an embassy in your country, or I have you know, another country's embassy representing my interest in your country, and there's direct discussion between two states. I don't like what you're doing, I don't like what you're doing, and we can use the standard issues of national strength or whatever you want to, you know, diplomacy, economic incentives, and, and of course the last resort would be a military action to, to resolve these things. But at least states can talk to other states. And this is the key factor here in this national security landscape, okay? So we, we had well-established diplomatic protocols. So 1990, everybody's excited. Soviet Union kind of falls apart, NATO goes away, I'm sorry, Warsaw Pact goes away, and everybody, you know, gets very, you know, we think we're going to end up into a new era of peace. Uh, globalization begins to take over, the globalization of the economy, and we're looking at an era of perhaps new prosperity. And I'm going to shut this light off just for a second so you can see this map a little bit better. This is Barnett's new map, which kind of made uh, some hay back in when it was published in 2004. And what Barnett said, well, the world now uh, is no longer sort of NATO-Warsaw Pact. It is now functioning core, non-integrating gap. What this says here is, is that globalization has not spread, 
globalization and the economic improvements that it engendered have not spread equally across the globe. Okay? And if we look at these gray things right here, this is what the World Bank says, at least, are some of the most poorly governed states in the world. And they tend to be concentrated in this area that Barnett named the non-integrating, and this is a classic geography. He created a region here, and he said that. And what he said is, is this, these, this non-integrating gap is continually separating itself from the functioning core. And if, you know, we can make another map and plot where we see terrorist organizations certainly based, there's a, a, a high correlation between the two. So this is one author's idea of the world that we face right now. And it's pretty close to, I think, what we're dealing with. Okay? So in this world that we see right here, and we think, you know, if you were sitting at the table with President Obama right now as part of his national security team, these are the things you would frankly be discussing out of that white booklet that I showed you. Operations other than war. These are things like sending folks out on peacekeeping missions, sending them out on disaster relief missions, power projections, okay? That's getting our power or somebody else's power to another place. These are drones, okay? Environmental security, worrying about water shortages, energy resources, and food security, amongst other things like climate change, etc., that are destabilizing parts of the world. We are dealing with state-centric threats, as I talked about, and then this issue of non-state-centric threats. So the issue comes down to this, then, as we get ready to talk about effective sovereignty doctrine. When we're dealing state-on-state, state, so when, when President Obama talks with uh, Mr. Netanyahu or he talks to fill-in-the-blanks, we can rely on well-established diplomatic protocols and doctrines. Okay? We understand borders, we understand state sovereignty, we understand normal diplomatic protocols. We don't do things you know, without each other's permission. So in that sense, this sort of what we'll call former security landscape was normative. In other words, we had diplomatic rules, they were established, they were reasonable, and everybody knew how to address problems. And in the end, perhaps it did end up in a violent conflict. We, we don't, you know, there's no, uh, there, there are a number of unfortunate examples of this. The problem that President Obama faces and, and other presidents down the road, frankly, is this issue of non-state-centric threats, which exist now in that non-integrating gap that I showed you. And the question is, for effective sovereignty doctrine, and as a geographer and as a political scientist, do these demand new, a new set of diplomatic protocols? And certainly, from the United States perspective, for the past three presidents, in, in, in one person's view, the answer is yes, and that's effective sovereignty doctrine. I'm not promoting it, I'm just telling you how this all came about. So, 9-11. What does the new national security geography mean, militarily? You know, so we experienced uh, this attack in September 2011. So if we put it in classic military terms, and you look at this map here, it means that Al-Qaeda, operating out of Afghanistan, achieved the strategic reach that we would normally see for a well-equipped military state, something like an intercontinental bomber or a strategic missile. I mean, this is what they did. 
okay, geographically. They've essentially reached halfway around the world, quite literally, and attacked somebody. Formally, there's only about four or five states that could do that. United States, Soviet Union, England, France, uh, maybe South Africa before they gave up their nuclear weapons, uh, things like that, okay? So this is their base of operations. Here is their logistics cell. So this is now when we talk about asymmetric warfare, something that you've heard about in the news. What does that mean? You know, when, you know, next week when Mitt Romney or two weeks from now and then President, asymmetric warfare, terrorism. This is what it means. Symmetric warfare is one state and another state. They have their logistics bases, they have their military bases, and everything's sort of symmetrical and we understand it. This is asymmetrical warfare at its height. We have the logistics and training base and the financial base for this operation in Germany. Okay? Meantime, the soldiers are getting trained at Air Bay, you know, learning how to become pilots in Florida and Arizona inside of our own country. Then instead of going to their national depots to get their weapons, well, they go to Logan International Airport and they go to Newark International Airport. They get the planes and they make their attack. So this is asymmetrical warfare. This is a new national security reality, okay, that we face right now, along with a host of other state-centric threats. So um, this is a redefined strategic geometry, and this is, you know, this is why I wouldn't want necessarily to be president. <laughs> yeah, I, there's no good answers for this stuff, frankly. I mean, you know, um, so if we think about the war on terror, if there is such a thing, we talk about expanding the war. So we started out in Afghanistan in Operation Enduring Freedom, okay? Then, starting in about 2005 or so, we started spilling over into uh, this area right here, which served as a nice place. It's, it's essentially Pashtun lands on either side of the border, this being Afghanistan over here. And Al-Qaeda and the Taliban essentially retreated in there. It's, it becomes a safe haven. It was never very well controlled by the Pakistani government to start with. And from our perspective, why is it a threat? Directed th uh, attacks against US allies and interests. We'll talk about that. It, you know, it, it, it is an issue. It is certainly a threat to Pakistani stability. And we're really concerned about that because Pakistan has nuclear weapons. Period. End of story. You know, I mean, whether or not we really like the Pakistanis is immaterial, frankly. I hate to say it like that, but that's essentially the truth. And it's an obstacle to a stable Afghanistan. And you know, uh, if you talk to anybody who served here, uh, they'll tell you it is, a, it is a near impossible situation. So the question is, what do we do about this? So you're President Bush, you're President Obama. This is a rather large area, probably almost 1,000 miles that way. Um, has a population of about 7 million. Um, Pakistani army doesn't really want to go in there. If we were to send our army in there, we would need about 750,000 soldiers. We would need a full World War II style operation. Who, nobody wants to do that. Um, so they came up with this great idea of these drones. Um, so the issue then becomes governance. And, and these are just some definitions. And you know, governance we all understand. America's, Americans, we tend to take governance for granted. You know, we get up in the morning, we can drive down the road, maybe the police will pull us over if we're speeding. There's certainly, when I drive in from Downingtown in the morning, I seldom worry about bandits pulling me over and taking my car. Um, these, are, these are common problems in many parts of the world, 
okay? So we have a sovereign government. We, we raise taxes. We issue currency. We have laws. We have health care. Uh, we have stores. We have a stable currency. These are all things that we tend to take to grant, for granted. Many of the places in the world that I've been, and some of, perhaps some of you have been, your day-to-day -day life and your day-to-day -day security is a matter of your own personal initiative. That's when we talk about a failed state and lack of governance. And that's essentially what the federal, uh, admin federally administrated tribal areas are like. So we have areas that are ungoverned. So I got asked a couple of years ago to try to figure these out um, for the Defense Intelligence Agency. I was still at West Point then. So I published this. And it was interesting. I got a lot of guff from a lot of people. It was a lot of fun. Um, but what I sort of said was we have govern, ungoverned spaces that are physical or non-physical. And this sort of chart here, these would be more physical ungoverned spaces. These would be more non-physical. So what do I mean? Ungoverned frontier territories. 2002, I was running around near the Yemeni border. There's nobody there except some Bedouins and the people who are not supposed to be there, okay? Nobody controls it. It's hard because there's, there's no roads, there's no gas stations, there's no nothing, okay? That is physical, ungoverned space, okay? And then we can come to what, and I, I won't go through all of these, but Pakistan kind of, uh, Western Pakistan falls under something that I called territories of competing authority. So here we have a site, and you've heard this in the news. This is not new. And this is not just my idea. But it's a sovereign state's inability or unwillingness to exercise authority over part or whole of its country. A non-state actor, in this case the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, can establish a parallel shadow government. Now this is not a new phenomenon. After World War, well, before World War II, here's a great example, Mussolini essentially wiped out the mafia in Sicily. After World War II, genius American and British set up a government council there and essentially the Italians left it alone the mafia came back in and set up their own shadow government. And it probably took the Italian government another 40 or 50 years to get rid of them again, okay? So it's not just terrorist organizations, that's a, a crime organization, okay? So what they're able to do is establish what we'll call a legitimate government structure. They assimilate legal norms. They take over as tribal leaders. They set up tribal councils. They set up their own, Sharia, in the case of Western Pakistan, their own Sharia courts and things like that. So this is essentially what we see happening in places like this. So what I did here for you was I plotted the World Bank Governance Index. They probably have about the best one. They lend lots of money and they're concerned about governance. So everything on this side of the line or everything with a positive number would be what they would call strongly or well-governed states. Everything on that side of the line is essentially what they would consider poorly or ungoverned states. And if you sort of take, and I use this right here, this would be the Human Development Index from the UN along this area right here, so very high. This would be Denmark, Sweden, the United States, England, and France, and so forth. And then we come all the way down here to what we'll call low human development and low governance. That's Somalia. This is North Korea, and you can see some of the usual suspects. And that's Pakistan right there. The other alarming thing about this, according to the World Bank, there's more dots on this side than there are on that side. And 98 of the 200 or 12 or so state entities that they track, and by state entities I mean like the Palestinian Authority areas, East Timor, 
Banda Aceh, places that are not necessarily states but are sort of somewhat independent. 98 of them, they consider down here in this quadrant, are effectively ungoverned. Okay? And what they mean here is the government seldom extends much beyond the boundaries of their capital city. Okay? And, and these are some of the scores that they give Pakistan. This is the World Bank scores. So 212 state entities, this 212, the 212th would be Somalia pretty much across the board here. This is where they say Pakistan rates. So they are well towards the bottom in most of these. This is Transparency International Corruption Index. They tracked 178 states. 178 would be Somalia, 148 is Pakistan. And this is the UN's own governing ind index. According to the UN, Pakistan, uh, Somalia is 158, Pakistan is 153. So this is a, a troubling trend. So we think again asymmetrical warfare, these are examples of some terrorist attacks or attempted terrorist attacks that were staged out of western Pakistan sort of in the last five or eight years. So it is an area of concern and we mentioned globalization. Globalization makes this possible not because of the benefits of a globalized economy but because of the benefits of satellite phones, International banking that is now essentially electronic allows quick transfer of funds. Uh, international travel has been made a lot easier. So uh, this is one of the issues. So effective sovereignty doctrine, which we mentioned. The state, situations, we retain the right to do this. Okay? Not all responses require military action. And in frank frankly, most of them have not been military. Most have been diplomatic or economic. So again, we still want to try to rely on well-established diplomatic protocols. We're trying to do that if you track the Iranian issue right now. Although that's not going to be an effective sovereignty issue, that's going to turn into, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, probably an old, uh, you know, a standard basic state-on-state -state military conflict, if it gets that far. And again, it's been evolving, and I mentioned, I think probably the first and great example of that was Beirut in 1982. The interesting thing is effective sovereignty doctrine has been held up in international courts, most recently in 2008 by the World Court uh, as a result of a U.S. operation in Syria during the Iraqi war where we sent special operations forces into Syria and we wiped out two camps that they had set up there, not something that made the news uh, and still hasn't really made the news. Shortly after that, Syria protested to the U.N. and President Bush went and addressed the UN on September 23, 2008, and that's the guts of his speech right there. That's probably the key issue, uh, and shortly thereafter, uh, the, National Se the, the Security Council voted to uphold our activity there, and also the World Court out of The Hague upheld effective security doctrine, essentially. Um, and he says that we have obligation to govern responsibly. In other words, our area is not necessarily going to be a place uh, that inflicts issues on another. So we get to the drone war, okay, which is the manifestation of this doctrine right now. These are the two principal players in the drone war. MQ-1, Predator, uh, an older version of that. We have the MQ-9, Reaper drone. This is the one that's probably being used most often right now. And there's a couple of uh, stealth drones and stuff that are more difficult to get pictures of. And, and sort of things like that. And, and these things are, are kind of interesting. They're essentially light planes. 
They're controlled by pilots who sit outside an Air Force base about 60 miles north of Las Vegas. And they fly these by satellite link all over the world. They fly out of Abu Dhabi. They fly out of Djibouti. They fly out of Ethiopia. They fly out of uh, Bosnia. They fly out of uh, Western Italy over Serbia. And most appropriately to this thing right here, they fly out of bases in mostly Bagram over Western Pakistan. They're there. They can fly for a long time, about 40 to 30 hours or so. They're, they're, they're very efficient. They're very, they got big wingspans. They're, they're actually kind of remarkable in terms of their aerodynamics. Uh, these have been around for a while. I first worked with this one when I was in JTF Southwest Asia uh, in 2001. Uh, they were unarmed at the time. The arming of these things is an interesting story. We actually have a legal precedent in our country. The only people who can fly armed aircraft is the Air Force, according to the 1947 National Security Act. So, you know, the Army said, the heck with you guys, and we put weapons on helicopters. And the CIA said, the heck with you guys, and we put weapons on drones. So the Air Force is still not happy with these. It's, it's kind of interesting. But uh, we armed these things beginning in probably about 2001, 2002. This one can basically hold, you see right here, uh, it'll hold two of these Hellfire missiles. This one's much, much bigger and can carry a lot more. In fact, it can hold up to 14 of these Hellfire missiles. So this is essentially a flying platform. It has these weapons on it. They're, they're very, very accurate. And it has this little head right here. And it's got a very high-powered television. It's got a high-powered thermal sight. And uh, from about, uh, this has a range of about five kilometers. So from about three kilometers up in the air, this thing's flying around. They're hard to see. They're hard to, you can't hear them. Uh, they can shut the engine off if they want. And, and you can direct this with a laser beam. And the, the, the key is, is from three kilometers up, these cameras here, can, they can see who you are. And they use facial recognition. This is how good the cameras are, okay, to give you an idea. But <clears throat> so uh, 2004, the Department of Defense issues an order with the, under the hand of President Bush to allow direct action in 20 different countries. Okay? And you could probably figure them out for yourself. Um, the Bush drone war lasted for about four and a half years, and as best we can tell, included about 44 drone strikes. Now, if President Bush would have somehow stayed in office for a third term, uh, the results would have been the same here when President Obama took over. So this is not necessarily President Obama is, you know, gone crazy with drones, it was a natural extension of a long-standing and developing national security. But you can understand what's happening right here. So, you know, for me, the issue with these things is my first, my first association with a drone was in JTF Southwest Asia, enforcing the southern fly, no-fly zone over uh, southern Iraq. Okay, got there, and uh, I pulled senior watch officer for 48 hours every month. Uh, I had another job, but I had to do that for 48 hours, so you're just on for 48 hours. And these things were flying over southern and, uh, Iraq and, and northern Iraq. I was worried about the southern part of Iraq. And they had great cameras, and we could watch what the Iraqis are doing, and we sent over airplanes, and we'd observe what the Iraqis would do. And invariably, you know, some poor Iraqi private sitting at an air defense base would get told up. Oh, some American F-16s are up there. Let's turn on our radars and point our missiles at them. And then this thing would pick them up, and we'd pick up the radar signature. But the key was, before they were armed, I thought we had a, ver a very long sequence of 
sort of checks we went through before somebody, I mean, we didn't make the decision. It was made all the way back in Washington. We'd pick up the phone. There was a major general that was there. You know, I was the senior watch officer. We would get the order from the tank in, in, in the Pentagon, and ultimately somebody in the National Command Authority, I don't know, it was the vice president, the national security advisor, somebody said, do it. And these poor schleps, being told by somebody to illuminate our aircraft with radar, some other plane would come over and you'd watch them just disappear. So this is a lot like video war. It's not much different than something you do on your PlayStation. And this is what concerns me. Uh, because now these things are armed. Now these things are circling overhead. And we haven't made any really big mistakes with them yet. But this thing's flying around with 14 of these missiles. And um, I think the threshold for initiating a violent reaction has certainly been made much lower with these things. Um, they're operating over Yemen now. Um, uh, they're operating over Kosovo. Kosovo is a problem area. We don't hear about it in the news a lot. But I think in the next three to six years, we're going to hear a lot more about Kosovo, for example. So, I mean, the beauty of them, as a former soldier, I, I don't have to go there. Or my son, who's a helicopter pilot, he doesn't have to go there anymore. Well, uh, not really, but anyway, um, that's kind of uh, a good idea. They've been fairly effective. And if we take a look at um, the number of strikes, and this is according to um, these folks here who keep probably the best non-classified records of the number of drone strikes. We can see it starts out, and, and this is only in uh, western Pakistan. It's not drone strikes in Iraq. It's not drone strikes in Afghanistan. So this is only western Pakistan. And you can see the spike clearly occurs in 2010. And this has dropped off since then, mostly at the request of the Pakistani government. Uh, and, and, and frankly, um, they've gotten much smarter for uh, hiding from these things. As best we can tell, or certainly these guys can tell right here, this has been the cost. And this comes out of Pakistani newspapers and other reports. So those numbers are what they are. I, you know, I won't necessarily vouch for them. Uh, this is probably in the literature the best and most widely respected source of these data. These are what we believe Taliban and Al-Qaeda have been killed. And these are uh, what we believe to be civilians. Okay? My experience is there's very little difference between that guy and that person right there. They usually wear the same thing. And at one moment, one of them has a gun. And one, next moment, one of them doesn't. So I'm not sure exactly when they tr how they get counted as each. So I think these numbers are a little bit uh, problematical. Um, the issue then becomes where have the strikes occurred? Certainly, most of them in northern Waziristan right here, uh, about 70% of them. About a quarter of them have occurred in South Waziristan, and then the dreaded other have been spread out through these others right here. But the key is over the last three years, that has forced now an escalation of the problem as much of the Taliban, the Haqqani network, and Al-Qaeda have moved in particular into these two provinces here. And the, the strategic issue with Quram province is it's also called the parrot's beak, or the soldiers call it the nose, kind of makes sense is that this is a salient, and of course, it allows for uh, more entry points into Afghanistan, which is problematic for our soldiers that are there. So um, what I hope to do very quickly was to take you through um, how we got here with this drone war, what it means, effective sovereignty doctrine. So at this point, we'll open it up to your questions.
Certainly, somebody is. I mean, I can't figure these lights out. Okay, there you go. Yes. Okay, so we're controlling northern Pakistan with drones right now. If it, if everything escalates with the rugged country, is it possible to even support a ground flight assault in the area? Well, probably half of the drone strikes that you see are actually supported by a ground team. Okay, everybody understand how these things work? All right. I have this handy board right here, and I will draw you one of my famous diagrams. <laughs> okay. Let's just say here's some hills, here's a valley, here's a small compound in the valley floor, and uh, here is our drone. Okay? Not a bad looking drone, right? So this thing is linked to GPS satellites. It's receiving a satellite feed from the air base north of Las Vegas and is flying around. It has its seeker head down here and it's observing that. And we, we've either got some kind of report, some person of interest or group of interest is in that little compound, okay? And they're flying around and they're watching it. And they'll watch it for days. The, the, this will fly for 40 hours. They'll send, they might have two or three overhead. Uh, they'll keep doing them until they're sure, either by checking through ground sources, that these people are who we think they are, who are they supposed to be. And um, at some point then, somebody will say, shoot. Okay? So what happens is, is there's a laser in here. And if you do it directly from the aircraft, the laser will shine down on the target. You could shine it on a person, a building, a car, whatever it is you want to do. And then they'll launch one of these missiles, okay? This missile is, is pretty big. It's about as big as I am in terms of, it's about five feet long. It's about that wide. Um, kind of looks like a, looks like that. It's got fins on the back. And it has in the head a TV camera and a laser seeker. So laser energy reflects off of this target. This thing takes off. The head starts seeking. It picks up the laser energy. And essentially, the laser energy refracts off the target in a cone, or they call it a basket. This thing flies into the basket, and it generally makes a funny loop like that. And it ultimately ends up on that point. Okay? This has about 500 pounds of explosive in it, which when you watch the news and they say surgical strike, for those of anybody who's ever seen 500 pounds of amitol go off, there's no such thing as a surgical strike, okay? Uh, you know, if they were to hit this room with one, I mean, it would take out this whole wing of the building. There'd be stuff flying all over. Anybody standing within probably 100 yards of here would either be dead or wounded. So there's no such thing as a surgical strike. Now. Probably the most way that these gets fired is somewhere on this hilltop. Over here, there's a special forces team, and they're watching that place too. They will shine their laser on that, and it's the same effect. And these folks may even go down there, and they'll interact with the people in the village, and they'll come back and say, yeah, they're there. We confirmed it. Um, so that's essentially how, this is basically how these things operate, okay? So there are people in the ground. Okay, small teams, um, but yeah. So did that answer your question? Well, I 
I can't imagine any under, any, under any circumstance right now that President Obama, or if Romney gets elected, or whoever the next president is after President Obama, or Mitt Romney, or whoever it is, would ever get involved in a ground war in Western Pakistan. I can't, I can't see it. So, I mean, I, that's just my, I don't have any, I'm just, I just think it's an issue. I don't think it will. Yes? I think it's also important to remember that our message there is of humanitarian assistance on the ground in Pakistan. But while we are using drones for all these years, those of us who work and live there and try to you know provide development aid and assistance, it's it's impossible to this and, and Jack is comes from CRS in Pakistan so and has been dealing with the humanitarian interests. So it's very different to your right to visit like a PlayStation but to see the effects on the ground. And that's all the Pakistanis talk about are the drones. So it's very much a huge, huge issue. So it's as I told you, trying to weigh the hearts and minds right. to do this is very difficult. They are working to counter purposes. Yes. That, that kind of dovetails on this the argument that actually drones perpetuate or exacerbate or increase <coughs> killing, increase wars, and what we're finding. And, you know, because the idea that you don't have to send, we don't have to send our, right. our soldiers over there, somehow this is going to be a proxy war, that they take the place of human presence. The argument is, is that actually this has, a, this has an inflammatory effect, the fact that they're not people involved actually make it worse and make the problem worse and eventually will result in the more loss, not only of human life in within the this region, but also American life. You can extend that out because this is so protracted. This is going to make that non-state um, uh, warfare more common. I, is that a, is that, a, are people I, asking those questions? Yeah, I, well, that's my point. I think this is, this is the, the fundamental issue that we face with this drone war now. It started out with a good way to go after some key targets, for lack of a better term, right? Um, and certainly the Bush administration and the Obama administration certainly saw this as a way to prosecute the war more cheaply in terms of American lives. I, you know, so that's what they're concerned about, frankly. Um, we have not ever, even in World War II, been very good at looking at the unintended consequences of our actions. You know, the, the, the Cold War is a result of that. Uh, you know, we, Vietnam, I, you know, I mean, so we, have, we haven't been, we don't have a real good track record doing that, okay, I'll tell you. I mean, so, um, so the question is, we have these guys there in Pakistan, or Western Pakistan, and we could say, well, why don't we just leave them alone? If a tree falls and nobody hears it, does it make a noise? But the problem is they can actually reach. We had a, 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 a person trained there and funded from there try to blow up those propane tanks in 2010 in Times Square. I mean, th this is, so you can't just, you know, the, the president who's responsible for protecting people, you know, he's stuck. What do you do, you know? So the alternative is, is uh, you know, go in there and, and, and do this with the drones. Go in there, send in a bunch of soldiers. And the issue with humanitarian aid is that this place, and, and you've, I, I think you've ventured in there, is so remote and has been so stratified from, Western, from 
Pakistani society um, that I think, you know, we're talking, there's a generational issue, I believe, and from my friends who've worked there. And Jack there, you can tell me if I'm crazy or not. Uh, so I, this is not, we're not going to go in with $20 million of aid next week and make everybody in South Waziristan happy, give them all a laptop and, you know, bring them all the food we want, you know. I think, and there's a, you know, in fact, if we think of the war in Afghanistan, you know, we keep saying it's an insurgency. I think there's a growing number of people who say uh, this is not an insurgency at all. I think the people in Waziristan and Afghanistan frankly side more with the Taliban and, and than they do with the Karzai government or whatever the government is in, in Pakistan right now. So this is really a low intensity uh, conventional war that's going on right now. Yes, it's just a theory. but. We're exacerbating the very problem that we're trying, you know. And, and I, you know, having seen these things operate, you know, think about this for a second. You're living in your village. I'm living in Downingtown, sitting outside. I'm, you know, cutting my lawn or doing whatever I do. And there are drones. I can't see them. I know they're there. It's annoying to me. Well, you know, it fires this missile. This missile goes uh, supersonic in the last kilometer before it hits. And the only thing I know is I hear all of a sudden a scream and a loud explosion, and my neighbor's house three houses away goes away. Maybe because his son or, you know, he's, I don't know, he's got a, an Al-Qaeda guy in there. I don't know. But this is, this is uh, psychologically is a problem as well. It is truly death from the sky. And if you've ever seen it, it, is, it, it you know, I hate to use the term, it's a remarkable weapon, but it's a remarkable weapon, and it's so accurate in what it does. But psychologically, I think for those people over there, it is a real problem. Um, so, yeah. Yes? I'm going to have two questions. The first one's not as sophisticated as the second one. Um, but what's the lag time between, like, looking there and then it coming over to America on, like, a screen or whatever? So, if I'm looking at the TV camera? Yeah, basically, and the drone. Three, four seconds. Telecommunications, maybe. Maybe ten at the max. Okay. Um, and, like, I would think, you would think that like America has learned a lot from trench warfare and how the, uh, the soldiers just like went crazy waiting for something to shoot at them. Um, have, did we not take into account what would happen to the Pakistanis who were just waiting to, uh, to be blown up by our drones? Well, that's what I meant. It's a it is a psychological aspect of this weapon. So I, I don't know. I haven't seen any studies of that, so I couldn't tell you. Um, I think I know how I would feel. You know, if I was cutting my lawn one day and my neighbor's house blew up, and then maybe two weeks later, uh, next guy over the mountain, I hear that his house blew up. I might even hear it, you know. Um, so, yeah. 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 I think we, yes. I just wanted to say that the NYU and Stanford University law departments just released a research study in which they interviewed 130 Pakistani people. Okay. It's an extensive study, and if you want a quick view of it, go to livingunderdrones.org. There's a nope. YouTube, and the Pakistani people are speaking. So it's it's about what you're saying, that how would it feel? And I and my question still is, does the U.S. government, and I know this is speculation, really believe that this is effective warfare? I mean, I. I, I, I can't quite figure out where they're headed. I know they have investments in Pakistan and India, that whole situation there, and China. And I, I know that there's permanent situation in Afghanistan, probably. But I just wonder what their final
final expectation is. I mean, you don't get rid of all of Al-Qaeda. No. Impossible. Well, I would say that the escalation, I mean, you could speculate that the escalation to 2010 indicated they thought this was an effective way of doing things. Right? Why else would they do that? Why else does it taper off after 2010? Maybe, one, the Pakistanis were pressuring us to slow it down, but I suspect we thought it's a lot like killing ants with a sledgehammer, maybe. You know what I mean? Not to mention, there, there is a moral and ethical issue behind this as well. Um, as I said, you know, when, when we have a mud hut over here that's maybe 10 by 15, and even if we know we've got the worst Taliban guy ever in that mud hut, and he, you know, and, but when we hit it, I don't care what you say, the surrounding Ted mud huts are gone with that. You know, I mean, it's just, there's no such thing as a surgical strike. The only people who know about surgical strikes are, well, the news people. Oh, we need a surgical strike in Afghanistan. You know, I'm like, you ever seen one of these things explode? I mean, seriously. Um, so this is, you know, and, and, and yes, we got that guy. Maybe he even deserved to be killed, but there are people around him, you know, and there's, there are structures sometimes that have been in existence for hundreds of years that have been vaporized as well. So there's a part of the cultural landscape that has been disappeared. So again, these are these are tough questions. Yes. Um, do you ever think that the presence of these drones could uh, cause the uh, Afghan people to uh, step up to their government? Um, because it had been done before, um, but it would cause like the people to step up to their government and say, "Hey, you're not taking care of us correctly, um, and this is what needs, this is what we want to happen, so we're safe." Having spent a short time in Mazar Sharif, in Afghanistan, myself, having lots of friends and students when I was a professor at West Point go to Afghanistan, I would tell you that the average Afghani is not aware of the existence of their own government. So I think the question's moot. I don't really think they recognize that the government in Kabul exists in Kabul, and maybe in Mazar Sharif, and maybe in Kandahar, and a few large cities. But beyond that, if you go in the, 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 you know, the Tora Bora area that you've heard so much about, or these places, they, they just don't know. I mean, they really, to them, it's an abstraction that doesn't really exist. They con they're concerned about two groups of people. They're concerned about the Taliban who comes around and gives them a hard time, and then they're concerned about NATO soldiers who come after the Taliban leave and give them a hard time. That's what they're concerned about. Um, I don't think they really, you know. And even if they did, there, there's no phones. There's, you know, who would they, how would they do that? You gotta understand, this is a really remote, situation in that country. Yes, in the back. Um, you talked about how like, using a missile on a like, surgical um, strike, would it be possible to use like a smaller missile um, to have the same effect? Well, there are smaller ones. Um, the problem is to make the missile go fast and to carry the equipment that's on it, the, the seeker heads and all of that. The missile has a certain mass that has to be propelled. And even if you put a smaller warhead on it, half the, t half the explosion is the fuel blowing up on this thing as well. Um, so they're working on things like electromagnetic weapons. You know, it shoots a small little puck at you know, three times the speed of light or something ridiculous like that. You know, so everything is mass times velocity. That might do it someday, but that's years down the road. Right now, this is sort of the, the, the 
premier conventional weapon available to do this. So um, in order to get the distance out, you know, there, there's really nothing else out there. I mean, at least that I'm aware of. You know, they may be doing something out somewhere classified, I don't know. But, so it's a good question, but I just don't think that's possible right now. Okay, yes. Well, yeah, let's get the guy next to you right there. Do you think uh, predator drones and airstrikes are really the best way to combat terrorism? Because in a uh, New York Times article I was reading about, it actually said that um, even though it's, it's really effective for taking out small groups and individual targets, uh, for example, with uh, the capturing of Osama bin Laden, that was in the form of a tactical team uh, being able to capture someone who's close enough to him. And by using uh, predator drones and airstrikes, we're not, well, we're neutralizing the target, but we're not getting the vital information from it. So, the, the answer, the long answer to your question, or short answer, that's the long answer, is that blowing up terrorists, capturing terrorists, putting them in Guantanamo, decapitating networks, freezing their funds, doing all of these things that we do, do nothing to solve the root causes of terrorism, which I kind of read that litany of the problems in Western Pakistan, you know, illiteracy rates, the feeling in a globalized world that you can't compete. Um, that's, you know, why are these people becoming radicalized? That's the core. That, that is the issue to solve terrorism. There's, look, there's going to be bad folks. I was stationed in the in early 1980s in Germany, and there was Bader Meinhof, the Red Brigades. These were college-aged, highly educated European kids that were running around blowing up things. Why? You know, there's a whole reason why they were doing that, okay? So, the, 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 you know, the idea of terrorism is not new, okay? So, again, what was the cause of all of that? Well, there was a large part of the, they, they felt there was this green movement, there was, Europe was becoming increasingly nuclearized by us and the Soviet Union. So, you know, you, you got to look at the root causes for this. So doing all that stuff's great. It's a lot like putting, um, after you get bad sunburn, you know, sort of a spray on it. It doesn't feel quite so bad, but you still got the sunburn, you know what I'm saying? Um, so uh, that's sort of what we're doing. Um, you know, uh, the, it, it took the British 10 years to effectively eliminate an insurgency and terrorist movement in Malaysia. 10 years of, of concentrated effort by the entire British security apparatus, and that was a small one. So uh, and it involved civil military action, it military action when required. It took them about eight years to take care of the one in Oman. And again, most of it was solved by civil military action, providing people with health care, education, water, shelter, things like that. Um, so, you know, all of these things are, are, are wonderful in that, you know, you're attacking an enemy that's attacking you, but you're not solving the root cause of the problem, okay? Yes, in the back. Um, you kind of alluded to or showed one example where the international court supported yes. one of the decisions of effective sovereignty. Uh, is there situations where, you know, that is not held up by the international court? Well, the Syria issue, where Syria took us to court in The Hague, um, that's the only one that I'm aware of, you know. Um, and, and our government will tout that for as long as we need to. You know, hey, look, it's so, and, and the UN Security Council voted that it was okay 
to do this. So, um, you know, until and, and look, if they vote against it, I don't think we're going to change either. Frankly, I mean, you know. Yeah. We didn't use drones in Serbia. We used plano. We used regular aircraft. Right, but it was unsanctioned. It was, we didn't have the approval of the UN Council, but it worked. Yeah. And so no one's going to go back and say, yeah, that was an effective campaign and it was illegal. They just say, work, let's just move on. So, so the results determine many times. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, that's a great, great point. You know, so. Well, we're, yeah, I mean, we, 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 uh, we we're, we're doing, we're getting short-term successes and now we're killing guys that we want to kill. But we're, we haven't changed the course of the war uh, an inch. So, yeah, you're right. It's like we're chasing bees back to the hive and it's slamming the hive with a baseball bat. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know whether we as a nation are, are have the tolerance to actually acknowledge that we're going to get stung a few more times before this problem is solved. I, you know, that, that seems like a zero tolerance, like we will not tolerate any more anything and we will come after you and we will, you know, slam you. But it has this ironic effect of making it yeah. more dangerous. And it slams our own celebrities. Well, I, again, I talk about, you, I mean, there are unintended consequences for everything that you do, right? I mean, the thing that concerns me more than anything else is if there is another successful attack on our soil. Yeah, I think that's going to be, it's going to be, you know, um, and, and for that reason, I'm not necessarily sure that actually Al-Qaeda as an organism, if there is such a thing, would do it. I think they are, you know. Yes. Uh, well, I just wanted to say it's close to closing time yeah. here. Um, if people want to stay, we can talk a little bit more about the organo. Please feel free. Oh, absolutely. But I wanted to ask one quick question. Have you considered offering your services to Mr. Netanyahu as a bomb drawer? As a who? Bomb, bomb drawer. <laughs> to, drop, to drop bombs. Did you see the bomb he held up? No. <laughs> no. You don't get the joke. I missed that. I got to look like Wiley. That's quite a This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.